is episode 114 of Offscript with Trish Glow's Intimate Interviews with Interesting People. And joining me today via Skype, I have Jeff Slegelmilch. He is the director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. That's quite a title, sir. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is very important that you're here. I'm very glad that you're here talking to me. And I just want to make a quick note. The episodes are a little out of order. I think we last left off left off with episode 110, maybe 111. Um, but we're skipping around because I felt it was very uh, necessary and important to have you kind of cut in front of some of those other episodes. Um, Jeff, I have so many questions for you. But you uh, you advise leaders on preparation systems and policy for all levels of government. Talk to me a little bit about FIRST, the National Center for Disaster Preparedness. What's the mission statement for you guys? Yeah, so so essentially the, the National Center for Disaster Preparedness is really at this intersection of research, policy, and practice. So in some cases we're conducting primary research, but in all cases we're trying to take the best available research, whether it's from our center or from other institutions across the country or across the world, and make sure that it's working its way to help support the problems we have today in disaster policy and in disaster practice. So we'll do this through advisory roles like you had just mentioned, through uh, op-ed, through um, um, policy analysis, things like that. We'll occasionally um, provide testimony to different legislative bodies and things like that, as well as, uh, you know, building toolkits and resources and working with communities to help um, not only provide the understanding of the evidence base that we have, but to also learn from communities what are the issues that they're facing, what are the, the challenges that could be better supported by the work that we're doing and that other centers are doing. And when we're talking about a disaster, what falls in that category? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I, I have this uh, saying that in disasters we have all these uh, um, squishy terms with fuzzy edges, and disasters themselves are as well too. I mean, they really disrupt um, everything around it, and and some disasters are so large that they disrupt the very systems that are designed to uh, respond to them. I think you know disasters are are can be a matter of scale, right? A disaster from the eyes of you know, the Oval Office may not include a uh, single house fire and a family leaving, but of course to that family, that's an extraordinary disaster and disrupts all aspects of their lives. So there, there's a little bit of scale depending on who's looking at it and who's defining it. But at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's where, where an unexpected event or unanticipated event really um, significantly disrupts um, our connection to mm -hmm. uh, our resources, our social networks, um, the world around us in ways that require significant recovery. I'm curious a little bit about you. How did you get into this? How did you become the director? I know at one point you were epidemiologist for Boston Public Health. So have you always wanted to sort of navigate down this path? You know, I, I actually did my um, undergraduate study in theater studies. So I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts in theater studies. Makes so, perfect um, sense. Clearly Right, it it does, yeah. Um, no, the uh, I, honestly, my my time as an epidemiologist and my time in theater and understanding theater of the absurd has has prepared me well for 2020. But the, um, it, you know, I, I there. In theater and the arts, a lot of times you end up sort of exploring these really intense situations mm -hmm. and trying to understand, you know, what it means. Uh, they say the arts is, is to help understand with the heart what you already know with the mind. Um, and I, a lot of the work we're doing now is almost the opposite. We know these things in our gut. We know things like the power of community, the importance of children in disaster. How can we provide the evidence base, the data uh, to support that? Um, but actually, it was like a lot of people in, in my generation, you know, 9-11 was a very much a turning point, a crystallizing moment on ways 
ways to refocus some of the energies we have into other areas. And I ended up in public health and looking at, you know, both uh, disaster preparedness domestically as well as global health. Uh, so went and got my master's in public health which led to my work with the Boston Public Health Commission as a, as a planner and an epidemiologist for a while, and then sort of followed the trail okay. into broader disaster preparedness and uh, ultimately found myself in um, academia of all places, which I probably never <laughs> would have imagined. But uh, really, again, trying to kind of unify what is the evidence available, what's the research that's going on, mm -hmm. and how can we connect that with the needs that you know I had when I was a public health planner, um, but also my colleagues across the um, various agencies and communities that are responding to disasters and preparing for them every day. Perfect. Um, I'm a theater nerd, so I love the fact that you got your undergrad in theater. I think that's awesome. amazing. Um, too awesome. So for the National Center for Disaster Preparedness, the NCDP, do you guys essentially help local governments figure out a plan when a disaster, before a disaster strikes and kind of how to navigate through that? So we have a, a number of different projects, so depending on what we're doing. So we have um, some training grants that we're, we're working with with FEMA to, to deploy nationally through FEMA's uh, um, uh, catalog of, of grants through the partnerships that they have. Um, so some of those are, are more specific engagements that we do that are defined by that context. Um, and others, we have a project uh, funded by uh, GSK, GlaxoSmithKline, focused on um, children in communities and building child-focused uh, disaster preparedness within communities. We're working with communities in Puerto Rico, North Carolina, Arkansas, upstate New York, um, kind of connecting the child-serving infrastructure with the emergency management and public safety infrastructure. So those kinds of projects, we get a lot more into supporting exercises and plan development and things like that. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of directly assisting. We're working with a, a number of private sector partners with COVID-19 on um, also internal planning and workforce protection and workforce absenteeism. So it, it's a whole range depending on sort of what we're doing, but really at its core, and I think what makes the center so special is that that genuine and honest engagement with communities and, and true partnerships with communities to, to really understand uh, not only what they're doing, but also how we can do better in academia to support the needs and the questions that they have. It seems to me too, communities based on where you are, you know, just within the United States, you sort of know a little bit about a, a, a potential disaster that could come your way, right? So if you're in the South, you know it could be tornadoes or hurricanes. For us here on the West Coast, we know it could be wildfires or possible floods mm -hmm. or something like that. So essentially a lot of these communities around the country should have an emergency plan in place because they kind of already know what could come to them. Yeah, I, I think that that's an important starting point, right? Because nobody knows the vulnerability of a community better than the community itself. Right. They know the the sub-communities, the populations that are going to need more help. They know the different mechanisms within it. And I think it's something that in sort of our, our national posturing we forget sometimes is just the tremendous capacities that exist within communities uh, to understand and leverage this. Uh, but I frame this as a starting point because we are in a situation where things are changing. Our, mm -hmm. our climate is changing. Our world is growing more interconnected. So looking historically at what those vulnerabilities have been um, can help inform that. But as unfortunately we're seeing now, as I know many, many of your listeners are affected directly by these wildfires. And it, it um, you know, my, my heart goes out absolutely to all of the work of the responders, to those affected, to those uh, able to directly support those affected. Um, and it, it's unfortunately 
a, a culmination of all of these things, these pre-existing vulnerabilities and these increasing threats that we're seeing through, you know, everything from longer summers to, to less rain and, and a variety of other factors as well. So yes, understanding vulnerability, the starting point is with the community, but then we also need to be forward looking into how the environment is changing to amplify these threats and vulnerabilities in, in new ways and new challenges that unfortunately we're experiencing today more than ever before. Right. Is there a central theme that happens in communities that they don't do well? If that's a question that makes sense. Is, is there any one thing that you off the top of your head go, most of the time communities don't do this well, this thing right here? You know, I, I think part of it is really, it's hard to play long ball when you're evaluated on short ball. Sure. I mean, um, is it communication, for instance? Is communication a, a, a big issue, a, a trend uh, between communities? Is, is that is that a problem? I, I think it's the investment in the kind of readiness that really, really matters. And that's a hard thing to sell. It's, mm -hmm. you know, in, with COVID-19, you know, it, it's local health departments that are on the front lines of this. But, you know, when, when public health is working well, nothing is going wrong. So it's you know, prime for budget cuts and it's expensive yeah. to do right for individual and family preparedness. You know, that's that's another one. It's all about relationships in the community and those take time, which takes money because it takes people who need to be paid. Um, I will say too, an emerging area though too is going beyond kits and things like this is really these investments in the social fabric, neighbors helping neighbors. We see time and time again in an increasing evidence base that actually these social ties, that these investments in these social networks, whether it's through block parties or barbecues or events, town events, events, things like that, um, can also be really extraordinarily valuable in terms of protecting people's health and speeding up the recovery process afterwards. Okay. So I want to get into, you know, obviously I, I mentioned to you here in Southern Oregon, um, we've had, a, we're in our own disaster. We're in our own little tragedy where we're seeing this up and down the West Coast, right? With communities from Washington, Oregon, California, communities are, ha are dealing with the same thing that we're dealing with right now. But just looking at Southern Oregon, we had this wildfire, you know, rip through a couple of towns here in the Rogue Valley just almost a week ago, which is insane to think about. Now mm -hmm. that we're going back in, we're fixing some of these hazards th that live within this fire, residents could start going back into their homes maybe as early as this week. Like, I'm just looking at this going, what do we do now? What happens now? Yeah. Yeah, there are some really um, important decisions um, that have actually been on the table for a while. Where do we build? Where can we stay? Yeah. Where can we afford to stay? And, and I think in terms of rebuilding, all of these questions are on the table. You know, we have different programs uh, through the federal government. A lot of them tend to be steered towards rebuilding the way it was before when really if we're looking at fire danger, um, I was actually in December, I was with some, uh, you know, just great colleagues at the Los Angeles Fire Department looking at some of the areas from the fires there from earlier in the year and talking to me about things like, you know, we like to have a lot of trees in a, over our house providing that shade. We like to have that narrow road one way in and out, mm -hmm. you know, so it doesn't get too built up. But these make it harder to fight fires. They make you more vulnerable to fires. So the way we build. But another is actually, and this has come through a lot of research, a colleague of mine, Daniel Aldrich, among others, has done, is that also you have a lot of communities that have really been shattered 
shattered by this. And the more that can be done to keep those communities together rather than break them up apart different communities, um, the more it preserves their social capital, the more it yeah. preserves their, their networks with each other, which can have really huge effects on that recovery effort, as well as the, the health and mental health of those affected into the long run. That kind of gave me goosebumps. And I'm going to warn you, I've been the most emotional person the last week. So I sure. apologize if I just sort of break down here. But, you know, I, I've even been thinking about all of these homes that are lost and all of these people are who are displaced. And while we do have evacuation centers, we have, you know, church parking lots that have opened up their parking lots to people to come just park and stay. You know, I'm going, where, where are all of my neighbors, where is everyone? Where are they staying right now? I just, I can't even imagine, Jeff, like what they're dealing with right now and, and where are they? That's, and I don't even know if that's a question you can answer, but it just, you look at it and it just seems so overwhelming right now. Yeah, and, and I think that that's where it really starts with preserving community and preserving those social ties mm -hmm. and reaching out to make sure that people are connected and feel connected. Um, because that's the starting point. These decisions and the whole myriad of decisions, where to rebuild, what to rebuild, what kind of um, fire mitigation strategies, which projections to use in terms of risk, there, there, there's a whole host of complicated questions to come. But it begins and ends with community. And the more that we invest in community and we look to those solutions and we take the you know, try to leverage the, the programs that become available through FEMA and elsewhere to really have the backs of those community decisions. I think the more successful and the more sustainable it'll be. But I, I would encourage everyone, you know, it's to uh, first and foremost, if you don't know what to do, to reach out, um, to check in, find out where those neighbors are, um, you know, uh, in, invest in, in preserving that sense of community, because that really is time and time again what gets us through. And uh, we're starting to have more and more data to support that on the scientific side. Uh, we're even seeing here in some of these communities, there were uh, large Hispanic neighborhoods, and a lot of those families are right now not asking for help, not reaching out um, for fear of, you know, maybe getting in trouble or having a light shine on them. So, I mean, is that something that's really important for even us in the local media to send out? You have to ask for help right now. I, I mean, absolutely. And also trying to remove any um, any fears that there might be. And, you know, obviously, there's a lot of uh, misinformation. There's a lot of politicking at higher levels, which creates a lot of uncertainty and a lot of fear. And and I think another really, really important point that, that this brings up is that the inequalities, the stresses, the pressures that exist pre-disaster are, are wedged even, even further. Mm -hmm after a disaster. Um, and we're even seeing that a lot of disaster recovery programs tend to favor those who are better off to begin with, have a higher capacity to engage in, you know, pages and pages of federal documentation and things like that. So right. I, I think it's, you know, highlighting the most vulnerable in our communities, those who were the most vulnerable before uh, are absolutely the most vulnerable after a disaster. And anything that can be done to um, shine a light on that, I mm -hmm. think is, is uh, an important thing for the community and of course those directly affected. When we start talking about rebuilding, meaning getting into these neighborhoods, cleaning them, cleaning them up, and then really start rebuilding those apartment complexes, those businesses that existed in the heart of these towns, who plays a role in that? I mean, government, all of us? Yeah, it's sort of uh, one of those all of us, um, but there are some voices that, that rain louder than others. There's uh -huh. a lot of pressure after disasters to rebuild quickly. Um, and this is one of those really sort of challenging things. You know, there was, I believe it was after the, the Kobe earthquake in Japan, um, but there was one jurisdiction that actually put a moratorium on rebuilding for six months. They said, we're going to take a breath. We're going to think through this. We're going to do it. I'm not 
necessarily recommending that yeah. you wait six months to rebuild a community. But the point that's made there is that, you know, that this impulse to rebuild as quickly as possible may actually be rebuilding the same vulnerabilities as before. And with these this changing threat environment, it could just be rebuilding right in the pathway. Um, and so I think that, you know, there are certainly um, on the political side, a lot of incentives to push things forward with the recovery dollars coming in to take advantage of those. Um, but to be very methodical about this, um, obviously, you know, rebuilding gets things back to normal quicker, but normal uh, is not what it used to be. And I think that uh, integrating voices that may not traditionally be a part of this to ensure that mm -hmm. it's community driven and, and also to ensure that, you know, 10 years from now, we're not in the same situation or, or five years from now, um, you know, taking increased likelihood of forest fires and, and what are some of the mitigation steps. Um, there are some tough decisions on the horizon. And if they're rushed, um, that's not going to make them any easier. It's just going to make them more consequential down the road. Sure. That is an interesting point. You know, I, I can't even imagine for someone who lost their home, they're thinking six months. I, I can't wait six months to even start yeah. thinking about rebuilding. But you bring an interesting point. You could look at this saying, let's rebuild, but let's do it in a way that was better than before. Maybe we had mm -hmm. these vulnerable spots along, we call it, it's the Bear Creek Greenway. We have these vulnerable spots. Maybe don't put those there in the future when we start mm -hmm. to rebuild. That's it. That's an interesting point. Yeah, and certainly, I mean, that six month is somewhat uh, arbitrary, right? There's no one size fits all. Sure. Every community is different. Every community has different dynamics, but but absolutely. I mean, there are some questions that, that need a little bit of time um, and investment in that time. Now, that's a hard thing to say when there are people out of their homes and people out of work and things like that. So these obviously need to be balanced. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, those who are most vulnerable before are gonna be the most vulnerable after and that needs to be part of the consideration as well. I don't know if you can speak on this, but I just have seen in the last, I mean, five days, all corners of our community have been rushing in with donations, um, offering up homes, pl places for people to stay, or hey, you can come park your RV, or I have an RV, use my RV and clothes. Sure. And we're even seeing uh, donation centers that are saying, we have a lot right now, we don't need any more. My question to you is, while everybody wants to help right now, is it best that we pace ourselves with donations? Because these folks are gonna be needing help in six months, in a year from now, not just necessarily right this very second. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. So there are kind of two dynamics here. One, exactly as you're saying, we see the surge of donations right after a disaster occurs, and then it peters out right away. And also, there's a lot of pressure. I gave all this money. Where is it now? How come it hasn't been dispersed yet? When the needs, there are needs that are going to come up a year from now that you don't even know of yet in this recovery. And that's really, with this kind of recovery, that's what we're looking at years. And in some cases, you know, we see it for decades. And um, the needs of families today are going to evolve over time. Um, so it's important to have those reserves to be able to continue to meet these emerging needs of communities as things change, as programs come and go. Uh, and then the other is to really, if you know folks feel compelled to help, absolutely, that's a good instinct, follow it, but work through the coordinating entities, work through the, the cities, the counties, the, the towns, uh, the emergency management agencies. A lot of times they'll have programs that'll tell you, they'll say, this is what we need. Mm -hmm. So they're not managing all of your old, you know, prom dresses or, or things like that, totally. um, which create another logistical burden. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and if you don't know what to give, give cash, because um, that's the most flexible of resources. Uh, but it's always better to respond to a request, respond to a defined need, than try to, um, for all the best of reasons, combine um, some, I guess now it's fall, fall cleaning with, uh, with the donation process. That can actually create a burden on emergency management and first responders. For sure, and then I can't even imagine some of these donation centers that are just getting you know, donations all day long and then having to sort through all of that and then some of it they're not able to use and then when it's left and they're not getting anyone coming in to, to get these donations and then they all have them left over and then what do you do with it? You throw them away? I mean, it just seems, it seems a little chaotic right now and I love the idea that people are wanting to help so quickly, but yeah, I just feel like, ooh, we need to pace ourselves. Yeah, exactly. And if it's something where, you know, you want to help, it doesn't necessarily have to happen right now. If you don't know what to do yet, uh, it's okay to wait a little bit, but then to also to really respond to those requests. I always think of this old Mitch Hedberg joke where he talks when someone hands him a flyer, it's like they're saying, here, you throw this away. And to your point, it just uh, uh, puts that burden on the donation systems who really need to be focused on the needs of survivors. That being said, a lot of these churches, a lot of these groups, they know what they need and what they have shortages of. Right. So if you do feel compelled to act now to, um, you know, to, to look at what they're asking for and to work to meet those needs. But if what you have to give isn't on anyone's list, then maybe take a breath, maybe, you know, check back in in a few weeks, see what's emerging. And like I said, you know, for any of these groups, cash is, is always the best donation because it's the most flexible in terms of responding to needs. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I, I love it. I think everyone's heart is in the right place. I was at the grocery store yesterday going, I should just pick up toothbrushes and toothpaste and toiletries and then I just said no I'm going to wait in, in a month and see what's needed then and then supply that so it's hard though because we we all just want to help that's the hard part yeah yeah and that's a good instinct and it should be followed through on and I think you know uh, just in the 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 nearly 20 years now um, that I've been involved in disaster management, it's sort of gone from a, you know, hold back, like almost adversarial with like yeah. spontaneous volunteers and things to actually then saying, well, how can we redirect this energy into something more positive? And so that's what I would say is, you know, don't be afraid to be part of the solution here. Just make sure you're working with kind of the receiving end that 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 your donation is having the intended effect and it's, it's meeting the need. Um, and a lot of times there are immediate needs, especially with shelters, you know, we see a lot. Um, yeah. And again, I urge you to look with where you're intending to donate, but things like diapers, baby formula, things like that, infant care. Um, so there are things that rise to the top that they are asking for. So if you're at the store, pull up on your phones, see what they're asking for. Mm -hmm. um, we were looking at the food banks by us and we said, well, well, let's see what they need, you know, when we go to the store and see what we can best give. So um, yeah, definitely, you know, this this is a, a feeling and an urge that people have that should be encouraged, but just directed to be as productive as possible. So it's not accidentally a burden. Yeah, it's beautifully put. Uh, I want to ask you about cash. We've seen a lot of, you know, obviously school districts saying, hey, if you want to help the families within the school district, you can donate money. And then you're having individuals saying, I'll take cash. I'm going to go buy stuff and then drop it off. I mean, we've got to be careful, right? Because un yeah. sadly, unfortunately, there's some pretty heinous people that come out of disasters like this and they just want to scam you. Yeah, and I think that that's where it's really to work with trusted organizations mm -hmm. on this. You know, if they're they're, um, I, I always encourage folks with embedded players in the community. Um, you know, are there foundations in the community? Are there food banks? Are there are there trusted sources? Uh, you know, there there are you know different things like GuideStar where you can look up charities and. I, 
think Charity Navigate. Anyway, there's yeah. there's mechanisms there to look up the veracity of a charity. The more sort of outside the box, if you've never heard of this group before, if you've never heard of this person before, um, it's not to say they're untrustworthy, but there's plenty of places to give <laughs> to give to. And if you're not sure, maybe steer it towards one that that uh, that you are sure of. You know, the the GoFundMe campaigns have been really powerful in providing a mechanism for folks who need help to get yeah. help. But unfortunately, it's also created, you know, a situation where folks can. Um, so I think it's important to understand like who you're giving the money to, what the organization is, or the individual um, community leaders who are looking to do this. If it's someone you trust, you know great if you're not sure if you don't trust them or just don't know enough to trust them look for other community institutions who uh, are built for this uh, who have a history of managing this because people can also be I mean there's the intentional scams and then there's groups who get into this with all of the best of intention and just really aren't set up to manage right. this and have a lot of trouble and inefficiencies getting the money out so um, just just know where your donation is going um, first and foremost is there an opportunity also for our local government to take a look at what has happened and now go back in, you've touched on this a little bit, go back in and now create change policies, emergency plans. I mean, is that what we should be looking at over the next six months to a year? Absolutely. And I would say even going on into the next decade and beyond that, that the, the table is set for disasters by much more than the emergency management agencies. It's through economic development policies, through building housing policies, zoning ordinances, uh, the investments made in maintaining infrastructure into public safety. These are all things that come together. And then we ask our, our first responders and emergency managers to manage the consequences of those decisions. And the world we're going into with more extreme events with, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, the new normal is not the old normal. Um, it really requires more insight in to these investments you know the short-term economic gain may be great but there may be a greater cost that's looming down the road mm -hmm. um, that again that that we're not aware of that we need to make ourselves aware of so i think that there does need to be an interdisciplinary process a place that brings together the various aspects of government but also the various aspects of community to be a part of these decisions and and to think of ways not only to look at this as a rebuilding uh, of the communities affected but more of a permanent body to look at development well into the 21st century mm -hmm. in mitigating and preventing and minimizing these kinds of impacts going forward because you talked about investment and i know for communities across the country it's this idea of well we don't want to on a day that's going to be super hot in our region and this event was a historic wind event, so this fire was was pushed by the wind. You know, do we staff extra patrols on this day? Well, that's going to cost money. Or do we create mm -hmm. this task force? Well, that's going to cost money. So there is that investment side too, right? Where we're all living in this community, going, whoa, 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 we don't want to jump the gun, or or do we want to jump the gun? I mean, there, a lot of things to consider, right? Yeah, and absolutely. And, and you know, you're going to pay for it now, or you're going to pay for it later. And it's a lot more expensive to pay for it later. Um, and I think that all of these disasters, these are not unique to 2020. Um, and, and I wish I had better news on that front. But, you know, this, this, these kinds of things, these are important moments to not only sort of reflect and, and preserve and rebuild communities, but also to collect the information to inform these decisions. What may not have seemed worth it in the past, uh, may seem more worth it now. 
Um, and also to get used to the idea that, you know, you, you may staff extra patrols, extra, all of these extra things in high wind events, and nine times out of 10, uh, it doesn't lead to a major disaster. Sure. Um, but the opportunity for disasters to occur is growing. And so we need to bake that into the way we invest our time and our public resources and our private resources. I would say that too, that you know, the private sector, the business that they do within the context of these communities, they have a stake in this as well too. This is not solely on the shoulders of government. Government has a leadership role, of course, but uh, you know, the folks making money from the communities also have uh, an opportunity to make the investments uh, that support the community as well as their own business within that context. And we as residents have a stake in this too. The community members have a stake Absolutely. in this. We need to speak up if we think, hey, this isn't working. It hasn't been working in the past. This is where we think it should go. Absolutely. And there's actually some research on the political science side that communities um, that elected officials are very heavily rewarded for recovery dollars, that the more money they bring in, the more resources elected officials bring in for recovery, mm -hmm. uh, the more voters respond by keeping them in office or voting them out of office if they're not happy. But there's no relationship between preparedness spending and voter behavior. So this is where also at its most fundamental uh, place in a democracy, residents uh, of the community can say, you know, thanks for bringing in all this recovery money, but why was it so necessary to begin with? Um, it's one of the most powerful tools to actually kind of reframe and rethink the way uh, we're looking at that and uh, and hold um, our elected officials accountable and let them know that, you know, we're watching and, um, you know, that, that this is an important consideration for everyone in the community. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's give high fives to the officials who are preparing to prevent something like this from happening. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And I, I, I think that there are, um, yeah, and, and a, a very fair point as well, too, is that the there are a lot of folks out there, you know, trying to make the case and who see this coming and both in, in the sure. affected communities and others. And I think, um, yeah, to spin the positive on that is to reward the, those investments that ultimately save lives and save livelihoods. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, for residents who, and I know this seems a little like, well, we're, we're going through we've already gone through this disaster somewhat, but like for me, for instance, or for, for anyone listening, what can we do as an individual to prepare? I mean, is it the go yeah. bag? Is it having resources for 72 hours? Is it just preparing that we have to leave our house at a moment's notice? What can we do? Yeah, so I, I think that there's a few, and this is actually another area that, uh, believe it or not, there's not a very strong evidence base on preparedness kits. We recommend it all the time, mm -hmm. but there's not a tremendous amount of research uh, on sort of what's the best thing to have. But I think at the end of the day, for you and your family, a disaster situation is going to create one of two scenarios where you either have to leave very quickly or you have to stay in one place for a long period of time. And what do you need in order to be able to do that? And I think starting from there, you know, uh, uh, having the options to be able to leave quickly, having that go bag, as well as having the, the supplies and resources to stay put for 72 hours or more, some are saying a week or more. Mm -hmm. Um, but then in addition to that, okay, food, water, um, we have some tools through our center as well as, you know, uh, Red Cross, ready.gov. But then thinking through what are the specific things about my family? Is there someone on medication? Are there, um, do I have someone um, on the autism spectrum where, where routine is going to be really important? What do we have for emotional support as well as um, uh, pets 
you know, uh, how are you going to feed your pet? How are you going to take care of your pet uh, for these time frames? That these are all sort of additional considerations. Think about the uniqueness of your family. But then the other investment is really, you know, as we talked about before, neighbors helping neighbors. You know, get out there and know your neighbors, check in on them. We've seen in disaster after disaster that a lot of things that have really led to saved lives has been neighbors checking in on neighbors and seeing that something was wrong. Um, in Japan, after the the tsunami, it was actually people ignoring what they were supposed to do and going back and checking in on the elderly residents and getting them to higher ground before the tsunami. So uh, these investments in in getting to know each other, have a barbecue, have a block party, yeah. uh, it's just as important as uh, making sure you have that water in your kit. And, and one other point I'd make, not everyone can afford a week's worth of food. Right. Um, some people rely very heavily on these things. So I think supporting local food banks as well as uh, collaborating with a lot of these charities on how they can help families sort of build these preparedness kits that um, there are a lot of folks in our communities who simply can't afford the level of preparedness that we promote. And uh, we need to find ways to uh, close the gap on that and provide the assistance for those who who may not be in a situation to do it all on their own. Absolutely, that's a very good point. I know just for me yesterday, you know, I wrote out a list of kind of the go bags that I would want to create. And I, I wrote down one for my dogs and my cat. I have two dogs and a cat. Mm -hmm. I created one for myself and then I created one like a medical sort of go bag with my, my husband's a fire captain and a paramedic. So his brain is very oh. much in all of this. Yes, yes. But just um, I'll tell you, Jeff, just creating that list and kind of being in control, I felt worlds better. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's that's the, the truth of it all. Um, Two other things I would mention, too, that I forgot to is, is key documents, mm -hmm. like if you own your home or insurance yeah. papers, things like that can be very, very important um, to have them, you know, physically as well as maybe digitized in the cloud somewhere secure. Um, and then... Um, um, also, uh, family members, where you would go, uh, you know, it's, you know, you hear about shelters being set up, especially right now with COVID-19, if you can avoid being in a shelter, that's always better. Right. Uh, so what are those networks that, that you can have? But to your point as well, too, you know, there's a lot that we can't predict, but the key to managing uncertainty is having options. And I think that that's what these, you know, this exercise of putting together these lists, what you might need, it doesn't give you control over the uncertainty, but it gives you options that you can exercise as that uncertainty begins to present itself and, and show you what you're dealing with. Uh, and that actually across all levels from the community all the way up to nationally and internationally is what we need right now. I can't say exactly what the next disaster will be. We can talk about risk uh, um, probabilities and things like that. But at the end of the day, it's mired in uncertainty. And the more options you have for what you can do, the better off you're going to be when you have, you know, a, a couple of hours to make that decision to stay or go. Right. Um, you don't have to invent that all on the fly. Right. And a little bit of, for those who can have personal responsibility and kind of hold themselves accountable, take care of themselves, the better off for those who cannot do that. And then we can take care of those folks. Yeah, and all yeah. of these response systems, these these government systems, the food pantries, all these other groups, the more that people are able, uh, to your point exactly, to, to care for themselves, the, mm -hmm. the more resources are available for those who really can't. Um, and that extends further. If there are neighbors we can help, if there are other folks we can help, it it reduces that, that proportion of the population that's going to need that additional help from the already very stretched resources of right. EMS and fire, police and, and exactly. the hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. Um, I want to wrap up just a little bit, but I do want to ask you about the mental health side. Um, yeah. Is that, 
I mean, obviously that's kind of a, a, a no-brainer, but that's going to be a big issue for us, the, the mental health side of all this, even from the first responders, right? A little bit of the PTSD that they could be going through, some of the mental health from our community members who've lost everything. It's just, it's going to be a big issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad that you uh, you brought that up because you you do have this short term trauma of those kind of exposed to the disaster. And then you have these longer term trends. Uh, a lot of our work has been on children and families and looking at children and the long term effects. Um, and actually, one study after uh, Superstorm Sandy in the New mm-hmm. Jersey area found that actually families with homes that were moderately damaged were at even higher risk of having health and mental health issues with their children. Um than homes that were totally destroyed. Wow. We had people living in homes that were partially damaged, sort of this constant uncertainty uh, mired around them. Uh, and so, you know, the mental health issues will present in different ways among different people. And it's important that there are community-wide resources and they're there for the long haul. Uh, the other piece is that, you know, there there's of course trauma that people are dealing with even before the fires, even before these disasters. There are trauma that kids have gone through that are leading them to act out in school. And a lot of times our, our school our teachers, our childcare providers are on the front lines of identifying that. And are they managing it as a disciplinary issue or as a trauma issue? Right. And so this kind of trauma-informed care and infusing that in all different aspects of our community um, make us more resilient, not only to future disasters, but also to recognize and help manage these issues earlier on before they become so deeply ingrained and so deeply part of the trajectory of particularly our children, but all of the individuals who are going through a a, a very traumatic time right now. Sure. We've actually here at our station have compiled a list of resources for those who are either wanting to help or who are looking for help. And a lot of the local organizations have basically said, hey, we're providing mental health services. And it just, it didn't even occur to me that that could be an issue for someone out there, but it's going to be a, it's going to be a big one. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And we do see time and time again across all disasters. And again, this is where those social ties and preserving those community connections and sort of uh, how we had talked earlier about reaching out to people and, yeah. and making that connection or sustaining that connection. You know, it's really, you know, resilience is really the culmination of, of millions of very forgettable acts of outreach and kindness. And uh, the, the more we get, the better. Absolutely. Um, and just sort of a final question for you, Jeff, where can we go to find resources? Uh, where are the, some of the best places that we can go to um, educate ourselves a little bit more? Yeah, so there's uh, there's a lot of different resources. So our center, mm-hmm. ncdp.columbia.edu, we have a number of resources on personal preparedness. We have this great sort of preparedness wizard tool where you can run calculations on how much water your family might need. We do have a toolbox focused on children and disasters. And this has really come from the communities that we've worked with on some of these projects. Uh, that's the rcrctoolbox.org, um, the Resilient Children, Resilient Communities Toolbox, rcrctoolbox.org. Um, and so uh, nationally, there's the ready.gov, the Red Cross, sort of the usual suspects do have some great resources. The Child Mind Institute uh, has had a lot of great resources on the, the mental health needs of children, mm. uh, especially in response to COVID. Um, and then uh, certainly looking with your local health departments, your local emergency management, your uh, local news stations, um, you know, these are um, some of the programs that are closest to home. And I think whenever there's a great program close to home, uh, it's going to be so much more tuned in with the community. So um, 
yeah, and our site is tracking a lot of different resources for for COVID as well as other disasters. So right. always happy to help uh, point folks in the right direction. Yeah, when I landed this interview with you, I looked um, on the website, obviously, National Center for Disaster Preparedness. So much information on here. I, I mean, I learned a few things just yesterday looking at it, so. Wonderful, um, yeah. I just wanna thank you so much. Again, I know this was a last minute interview, but I just felt it was so important. Um, hopefully some of the listeners will get a lot out of this. I know I have for sure, um, but I really appreciate your wealth of knowledge and sharing that with us today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this and for you know uh, helping your community in this way. I mean, I'm just sort of a talking head here. It's really, there's a lot of very heroic things being done in the community by the responders, by the partners, by the residents, and uh, any way that we can be helpful, we're, we're honored to do so. Well, I appreciate your talking head. Uh, one more time, Jeff Slegel-Milch, the director of the National Center for Disaster Preparedness at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. Thank you so much. We will be putting um, this podcast up this week. Uh, it will be um, audio platforms as usual, and then you can also watch it, ktvl.com and on YouTube. Jeff, one more time, thank you so much. No, thank you, and I very much appreciate it.